you guys have a Bible, go ahead and grab those, and you're going to make your way to the letter to the Colossians. If you need a Bible, there should be some Bibles there on the chairs there around you. And we are going to go to page 772 if you're there, Colossians chapter 2, page 772. So we're going to continue along in this series. Now, if you're visiting this morning, I think I'm going to have to probably drop this disclaimer each week now. Um, If you're visiting this morning, keep in mind that what we are talking about today and in the coming weeks, we have been building on over the course of uh, the summer starting back in April. So it may seem strange to drop in on a sermon like today where we're talking about demonic things or how demons can influence us. But keep in mind, we've laid a foundation. It would be well worth the time, I think, to go back and hear that foundation, especially if some of the things we're looking at today, you're going, that doesn't make sense to me. It's certainly not the type of topic where if it's your first time um, being introduced to a particular congregation that it, that, it, that it leaves you with warm fuzzies. It's certainly not kind of that kind of. So just, just know that it's part of a series um, where we have been so far as we've looked at what does the scripture say about spiritual warfare? Because that's what this series is about. What does it say about spiritual warfare? But it's not your typical spiritual warfare series. And so we've been focusing on things that maybe you don't normally focus in on when you think about spiritual warfare. But we've been honing in on what is the enemies of the, uh, the uh, what is the tactic of the enemies? What is it that, that he comes after us with? How does it look in our everyday life? Maybe some of those ways we may not recognize because we're not looking for it. And then how do we interact with that? How do we engage with that? Because part of our premise on this series is that if we don't know, if we're ignorant about how the enemy operates and what it might look like, then we can't engage. We can't resist. We can't stand firm. And we can't do the things that in the authority of Christ we, we, are, we are given to do. And so we looked at some of that early on. We saw some connections about how, how demons might impact a person. And then we shifted the last couple of weeks to, well, what might open a person up? And we talked about this open door. Like if you leave a door open and, 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 and you go to sleep at night, that's not a guarantee that someone's going to walk in your home, but it sure makes the potential go up, right? And so this open door idea that when we leave doors open, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're going to be impacted by a demon, but it leaves that door open that we might be impacted. And so we need to recognize what are some of these open doors. And so we've talked about anger. We've talked about unforgiveness. Um, we, we, we're going to be looking at uh, some, some teachings this morning. Last week, we talked about this idea of false kind of wisdom that's not based in God, but is instead uh, based in demonic things. It looks like jealousy and selfish ambition. And so these kind of things, when, when they characterize our life, could open us up. Now, we're not going to be looking at every possible open door, but I want to I put this before you. Early on in our series, we looked at things um, that would be involved in what we would call the occult, witchcraft, sorcery, divination, um, you know, crystal balls. Uh, we talked about um, the, 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 um, the horoscopes and things like that. These are all things, it, you shouldn't lose sight of that. These are all things that if we participate in them, these two are open doors. And so it, it's, it's important for us to recognize where is something based, where, is it, where, where does it come from, what's its purpose? Because these things, we could knowingly do it or we could unknowingly do it. Um, around here, uh, one of the things that we really have to pay attention to is what are we being influenced by that's either new age Right? That's not of the gospel. It sounds spiritual, but it's based in Eastern religions. Um, usually what that looks like is some kind of idea that God is in everything, 
God is, God is in me, God is in you, God is in the tree, God is in the deer, God is in everything, and we're all a little bit on God, so therefore we're all connected. So a real easy way to make this connection would be if you've ever seen Avatar, Avatar puts this view forward. If you've ever seen Pocahontas, Pocahontas puts this view forward, which then lends itself to this is a common among Native American tribes. The idea that um, there is divine in all things. And so a lot of times the things that, that people participate in that's associated with, say, Native American tribes, while they may seem more like culture or heritage to you and I, what's important for us to keep in mind is when you become a, a Christ follower, your heritage is Christ. When you become a Christ follower, some of the things that maybe you would have clinged to in your past because that's my family, that's my background, we have to now reevaluate through new eyes, through eyes that the Spirit gives us because something that we may have grown up with, thought was innocent, may actually not be innocent. So these, all these kind of things are open doors that could open a person up to, to being demonized. Now, the things that we're talking about this morning... We're going to use this phrase, deceitful philosophy, because that's what, that's what Paul uses. But we're going to go here this morning. Anything that undermines the all-sufficient work of Christ is demonic. Anything that undermines the all-sufficient work of Christ is demonic. So a lot of times when we think spiritual warfare and we think demonization, we think that a person is completely under the control of some kind of spiritual being and they, they, lose, they lose all awareness and they're doing things that are just completely vile and heinous. And that's certainly part of it, can be. But the things that we don't look for, the things that we don't recognize as easily is, are the things that maybe go against the gospel. The things that maybe undermine what Christ has done on the cross on his death and his resurrection, the things that, that Christ has died to purchase for us, when we go against that because we're buying into something, or when we start to participate in something that undermines that, that too, Paul will tell us, is demonic. And I think you're going to be surprised at some of those things. So let's say you look. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 8. So we're going to ultimately go through verse 23, but I'm going to do a lot of summarization this morning. All of it's worthy to go into in detail. But for the sake of this morning, I'm going to hone in on a few things, summarize some other things, and then, and then hone in on, on a few other things at the end. So Colossians 2, verse 8 through 10 is where we're at. Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So we're going to stop there for just a moment, and we're going to, we're going to see what Paul's saying. So he, he's saying to them, he's giving them a caution. Now, he, he's just finished telling them that you've been made alive in Christ. You, you have, if, you, if you just glance back at verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him. So that's his, his understanding of the people he's writing to. You've already received Christ as Lord. They've been saved. Right, But now he's saying, you don't just get saved by faith in Christ and then live however you want. You get saved by faith in Christ, and you continue then to live your life in Christ by 
faith. So just as you've received him, therefore he would say, walk in him. Now, as you're going about living out your Christian life, keep in mind when Paul's writing to Colossians, he's writing to largely a group of people who are non-Jewish. They would not have been raised in the Jewish faith. The law, the, the moral codes that Jewish people would have had, not going to be something that's part of many of their upbringings. To be sure, there are some Jewish people sprinkled in there, but largely a non-Jewish group of people. And so he says to them, now, then see to it, so the assumption is as you're living out your life in Christ, see to it that no one takes you captive. So he picks up on this, idea, uh, this, this um, imagery of a person who has been bought as a slave and then now is being led away from their home and into a foreign place. And the idea that he's trying to build on is if you become a captive to the things he's about to say, you've become enslaved to it and you're being led astray away from truth and into error. Okay, so he's saying, hey, he's using very strong language. Don't, uh, make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, sometimes when we see something like this in English, we'll go, oh, that's two different things, philosophy and then there's empty deceit. But sometimes the way that, that the, the Greek language can work, the way it's structured, and, and we could do that in English too, but we might phrase it a little differently than just an and, right? Sometimes there's a very close relationship between the two words that are joined together. And so it could be, we look at them, we say there's philosophy, that's one thing, and then there's empty deceit, that's another. Or it could be, and what I think Paul's doing here is philosophy and empty deceit describe the same thing, so that the philosophy that he's describing is an empty, deceitful type of philosophy. And so some of your translations actually pick up on that, and they'll just merge those words together. And they'll say um, something like, no one takes you captive by uh, deceitful philosophy or, or something like that. They'll merge them together. So if you see a difference between what you see on the screen and, and what you see in your, your Bible, particularly, I think the New Living Translation does that. And I know a lot of you guys look at that. And so that's why they're doing that, because it, it can be that. And I, I think that's what Paul's doing. He's saying there's a type of philosophy that's empty and deceitful. Now, we've got to talk about philosophy, because I, like, like you, I'm sure, I've heard so often this verse used to just rail on all types of philosophy like we would think about it today. When you think about philosophy today, you think about someone who's going to college and getting a good degree and paying money for something that they'll really never use to benefit anyone in any kind of meaningful way, right? They're just gonna go think deeply about things and do nothing. Like, I mean, it's kind of that idea. They're gonna, in all actuality, you know, what you do in a philosophy degree is you study some of the deep thinkers who have influenced um, the course of history. It really does have a lot of value. The problem is we miss that so often. And so when you start reading some of these people who have influenced the course of history, it helps you to understand this is how we got to where we are. We need to see this error in this thinking so that we can get us back here. I mean, it, it's got value, but, but typically that's, that's about as narrow as we think of philosophy. We think of someone who thinks deeply, who thinks about life, the big questions of life. If there's a Christian philosopher, then they're thinking about the deep questions of, of life from a Christian perspective perspective. That's, that's our definition of philosophy. That's how we view it. It's very narrow. That's not the word that Paul uses. And so, so we have to be careful not to go rail on philosophy because I don't think Paul is going to, to come down hard on a Christian philosopher. Some of the people that you guys enjoy the most, um, and I'm, I'm going to throw out some names, and I understand there's been some, some, some developments with some of these names, some things have come out, so maybe their reputation's tarnished, but their work is still good. So I think of people like Ravi Zacharias, right? Ravi Zacharias is a, is a Christian philosopher, right? Um, I think of William Lane Craig, 
Um, and, 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 and William Lane Craig is a Christian philosopher. I, um, there, there's several others, but those I think are two of the ones you might be more familiar with. Josh McDowell, if you're a little, little older, previous decade, his son um, also is currently doing what we'd call apologetics. But when you get into those kind of things, that's philosophy. I don't think Paul would come down on that kind of stuff if a person is going at the deep questions of life from a Christian worldview. That's not what Paul's getting at. In fact, this word, as Paul used it, when he was using it this day, it was very broad. This, this word can include any way of thinking, any worldview. So the way I think about the world, the way I think about events, the way I think about people, the way I think about existence, the way I, the way I operate because of those things, philosophy covers all of that. So it's not just a very deep way of thinking and, and, and studying certain people. This is everybody would have had a philosophy of life. Everybody would have had a philosophy of God or the gods. And so, so Paul's word, philosophy here, is, is very broad, and it certainly includes the way we view the world, the filter through which we run all things. And so when he then says this, he says, see that no one takes you captive by empty or deceitful philosophy. He's, he's warning them against a way of viewing, a way of understanding the world and things around them that ultimately is not based in God. And therefore, it's empty. It, it ultimately leads to death. It does not lead to God. And then, therefore, it's deceitful because anything that is opposed to God and his way and his will and his standards is deceitful. And if it leads someone away from God, it's deceiving them so that they would, they would follow after that instead of God. So Paul says you've got to watch for that. You've got to watch that no one leads you away. And so the imagery, again, keep in mind, there are ways of thinking there, there, are, there are systems of thought. There's ways that we're influenced that if we buy into them, Paul's saying you will be led away like a captive and you'll be led away from what's true and you'll be leading, being led into error. So he says, watch out for that kind of stuff. And then he gives us some more descriptions about, well, well, how do I recognize this? How do I know if I'm being led captive into something that's a deceitful philosophy? He says, well, it will be according to human tradition. So anything that, that is a way of thinking that is a, a system of thought or teaches you to view people, to think about things, the world, God, and it's based in humanity. It's not based in God, it's based in humanity. In other words, what can I come up with? So if I, if I, if I just one day decide God is not in existence, God is not the supreme being, there is no God, and maybe I might just be a little cautious and say, but there might be a God, a supreme being, but I'm not, I'm not sure who it is, and I don't think we can know him. So not full atheistic, but maybe agnostic. If we, if we get there, then we're left to then try to figure out the world. We're, we're left to try to figure out the meaning of life. We're left to try to navigate our way through relationships. We're, we're left to, 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 to think the best to my ability, how do I understand what's going on? How do I explain things? And this, of course, is where we get a lot of the things that we're taught in schools, uh, a lot of things that we're taught by uh, what might go as science, a lot of things that we're taught by people who, who buy into that and say this is the more enlightened way of thinking. But it's based in humanity. It's not based in God. It's opposed to God. And so Paul says these are human traditions. Now, in his day, that could have been certainly other ideas about God. It could have also been, as we're about to see, um, the way you live your life, that this is the way you get to know God. This is the way you grow in spiritual maturity. You do this and and all of that would be based on God. So he says, watch for things that are based in human tradition, which means I've got to test the things that I, that I know. 
I've got to test the things that I'm buying into, the things that I'm letting direct my life, the things that I'm orienting my life around. I've got to, I've got to test those. Where does it come from? What is it based in? Who is it based in? Can I, can I find that in the revealed word of God? Or did I get this because my parents said this is what we do and their parents said this is what we do? Well, I need to find out, is what they said we do part of what God says we do? Or this is my, my, my heritage, I'm from this type of people, and so this is how this type of people have always lived. Well, now that I'm a follower of Christ, I have to test that. Is that how I should continue to live? It might be based in human tradition. So Paul says, watch for that. So a deceitful philosophy is one that, that goes according to human tradition. It's also one that goes to according to the elemental spirits of the world. And this is where we're going to ca- uh, camp a little bit. This is why it ended up in our series, because of this phrase here, the elemental spirits of the world. Now, there's, there's different ways that your, your Bibles may translate this. So you might see the elemental principles is a very common one. Um, you, might, you might see something like the fundamentals, or, or, but usually a lot of translations, if they don't go with this, and, and a lot of them are going this way now, they might say the principles, fundamental principles. Now, the word here, this is, imp- this is important to understand. The word that Paul uses here in the Greek is the only time it ever shows up in, in, in the scriptures. And it's the only time Paul uses it. So a lot of times when we are trying to figure out how is this author using this word, we, we have to look at, well, how was this word used at that time? We, we have to look at how, how did he use this word in other places, right? And so that's how we then come to the context of, of what this person means. But in this case, this is the only place Paul uses it and no other author of the Bible uses it. And it was used around Paul's time, but it was morphing in its meaning, hence the differences in your translations. So some of your translations are going to capture maybe the, 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 the older meaning and, and certainly a common one that would say fundamental principles. And the idea would be, um, it could be things like these are the basic building blocks of life, these are the basic principles of understanding. Um, but keep in mind, this, this world that Paul was living in and writing in, they did not separate the spiritual from the physical like we do. They didn't, they didn't have a physical world and a spiritual world that were kept neat and tidy. Those two worlds intersected and interacted all of the time. And so there was also another meaning of this world where the, fundame- the, the fundamental principles or the elemental spirits were understood as the, the spirits like um, earth, wind, fire, air, right? The, the fundamental elements of the world. Some of the people understood the word to mean that, right? And so, so we've crossed into now there's some spiritual beings involved, but perhaps it's the spiritual beings that's behind fire, earth, wind, things like that, because keep in mind the people would worship the stars, they would worship the creation. So that, it got used in that way. But then also we have, we have uses of it, that word where it means like a demonic being. A, an, an elemental spirit would be a spiritual being of some kind that is influencing certain types of behavior or influencing certain types of thought. And so we, we see all of those different types of meanings. I think, and the translations, the later translations do catch us. I think that's what Paul's going after. I think Paul clearly has some spiritual beings in mind. I'm going to show you why in just a moment, why I land there. But I think he clearly has in mind spiritual beings. And so if that's the case, then he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by full, empty, deceitful philosophy. He tells us that philosophy is according to human tradition, but it's also according to the elemental spirits of the world. It's being influenced by demonic beings. And then he goes on and he says, and not according to Christ. So the type of philosophy, the empty, deceitful philosophy, it's a human tradition, 
It's influenced by demons, and it goes against Christ. How do we recognize these, these, these deceitful, empty philosophies, these ways of thinking, these systems of thought? I need to test them. I need to understand where they're coming from, what they're based in. So someone says to me that um, evolution is true. And now I'm about to step on some toes. We can talk about this later. But evolution is true. All right, now, before I just buy that and just take it because my teacher said that, God gave me a brain. Right? So I can think, I can analyze some things, I can, I can go to his word. So I have to ask, well, what is evolution based in? Do I find any support for it in scripture? I have to ask, where, where does this find its, its, its origin? Well, if we're being honest, we'll find that evolution ultimately finds its origin in an atheistic worldview, a worldview where there is no God who created, but rather that Different theories, but perhaps like a Big Bang uh, put some things into motion, and then over the course of millions and billions of years, things evolved from simple organisms to more complex. Okay? So I can buy that. I can accept that from my teachers because, after all, they're the authorities. They carry the degree in teaching that I should listen to them. Or I can say, you know, God gave me a brain, too, and he told me to love him with it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've got to test that. And I've got to say, well, where do I find that in Scripture? And if it's based in the assumption that God does not exist, that sounds to me like human, human tradition. Certainly, uh, demonic spirits would influence a way of thinking that denies the existence of God, right? And does it go against Christ? Well, I think it would go against Christ. So I've got to, that was an example, but I've got to think like that, right? I've got to find out where is this base. So when it comes to then living out my spiritual life, I've got to do the same thing. If someone says, this is how you grow as a believer in Christ, I need to test that. Because some people have some pretty wacky ideas about how to grow as believers in Christ, right? They, they, they put certain rules and regulations on you and say, well, this is how you do this. And so if you do this our way, since we're obviously the authority, then you too can be like us. Well, is that based in human tradition? It's, if it's leading me away from the gospel, if it's adding stuff to the gospel, then it's going to be not according to Christ, and certainly that would be something demons would want to influence. Okay, so Paul says, watch out for this. And then he says in verse 9, he's going he's gonna to help them. He says, listen, there's going to be these things that pull you away, and they're going to not be according to Christ, but in him, in Christ. And this is where I'm going to start summarizing a little bit, but hear me, all of this is worthy to dig into much deeper. But he says, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You don't have to go somewhere else to find the things that you're looking for. In Christ, it is all there. He is fully God in the body. And then Paul says, and you have been filled in him. He's given you all that you need. So if they're looking for a spirituality that takes Christ and something else, and that's, that's what we, we, we think Paul was writing against, this some kind of syncretistic idea that was slipping into the Colossian church that kind of mixes Jewish faith elements, Christian faith elements, and some of the uh, other religions and, uh, from the people in that time. They're kind of mixing it all together, kind of like what uh, voodoo does, kind of like what Catholicism looks like a lot of times in South American countries uh, or in Haiti, for instance, too, where you're taking some Christian, some tradition, or other religions and piecing them together, and that's not Christianity. Right? It, it's not. And so, so Paul says, it's in Christ you have the fullness uh, because he's fully God in the body. He's filled you in him. And then look at this phrase here. And he is the head of all rule and authority. Now, I've said to you time and time again, when you read Paul, oftentimes what Paul does when he wants to talk about spiritual beings is he uses this kind of language. Rule, authority, power, principalities, dominions. 
right? So that's what Paul has in mind here, which is also why I think then it lends support to the elemental spirits of the world being spirit beings of some kind, some kind of demonic being, because it's in the context we already have another reference to that. And so Paul is saying, hey, if you're being led astray by a deceitful philosophy, and that, excuse me, that deceitful philosophy is demonic, it's demonically influenced, it's demonic in nature, you need to keep in mind that Christ has already been elevated above all rule and authority. So whatever demons are influencing these philosophies, Christ is over them. You're following something that has been submitted and surrendered to Christ. We're going we're to go on. He goes on, he's still talking about Christ. He's, he's trying to help his readers understand this is why you don't want to be taken captive because all the stuff you find is in Christ. In him, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So perhaps this is where some of the Jewish elements of the false teaching comes in because we know that there were Jewish Christians who believed that if you want to be saved, you've got to trust in Christ and if you're male, be circumcised. They were adding that to it. Paul's, one of Paul's biggest debates was over circumcision. The council in Acts chapter 15, one of the things they had to consider was do we require non-Jewish men who become believers in Christ to be circumcised? It was a big discussion. And so Paul points out, you've already been circumcised. You've been circumcised in Christ with a circumcision not made by hands. And this is similar to what Paul would say in other places, that that's a spiritual type of circumcision. It's the removing of my hard heart and instead replacing it with a heart of flesh. That's new covenant language. That's right out of Ezekiel uh, 36. That's right out of Jeremiah 31, where he talks about there's gonna be a day where my spirit's gonna come upon you. He's gonna write his law, my law on your heart and he's gonna remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's a, a cutting away of something so that something else can be there. He says, you've already had that happen to you. So that's, that's one of the things that happened in Christ. He goes on, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So because believers in Christ are connected to Christ by faith, one thing that Paul helps us understand is this is not just an intellectual connection. When we receive Christ, when we place our faith in Christ, his death and his resurrection on the cross for us, we are spiritually joined to Christ. And that's called baptism. 1 Corinthians 12 mentions it this way. We were all baptized into one Lord. One, uh, Ephesians would say, go on and say one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But this idea of being spiritually joined, so much so that biblical authors can say things like this. You're in Christ. Not just that um, you, now, you now are associated with Christ, but you're in him because we're joined to him. They, he can say things like, like what Jesus was getting at in John 15 where he'd say, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. And nobody can do anything if they don't abide in me. This, this connection to Christ is one that, that is a, a, a spiritual connection. And so Paul's capturing that here when he says, when you were, um, you were um, buried with him in baptism, and he's talking about the spiritual baptism, which is then illustrated by water baptism. Paul's not supporting the idea that a water baptism baptism saves or that a water baptism is necessary for salvation. But in his day, and it, and, it, and it should be more our day, but we have different challenges, right? There was hardly a situation where you had a believer in Christ who was not water baptized. 
You didn't have believers in Christ who went four, five, six years before they got water baptized. It was a very closely linked thing where a believer in Christ became a believer and very soon after, perhaps even that same day, they were baptized. It wasn't until the early church after the last apostles died that we started to see some separation between those things happening. And so when Paul talks about baptism, he's oftentimes talking about the spiritual joining with Christ, but that is often uh, um, also meant to to reflect the water baptism. And so he says, you've been buried with him in baptism. So when I've been connected to Christ by faith, just like Christ died to the power of sin, I died to the power of sin, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Uh, Since Christ raised from the dead because I'm spiritually connected to him by faith and he rose to a new type of spiritual life, I too get a new type of spiritual life that comes from above. That's me being born again. Um, The theological language for that would be I am am being uh, regenerated, I'm being made new, and I'm converted, I'm changed, right? And so he's saying this has happened to you in Christ. And then he'll, he'll go on, this, is a, this resurrection is according to the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We go on in verse 13 and he says, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So a person who is a non-believer, someone who is not connected to Christ by faith, Paul would say it here, he'd also say it in Ephesians 2, you're dead in your trespasses and, and, and sins. And in Ephesians 2, he adds in sins. The idea is I'm spiritually dead before God. And what can, spirit, uh, can dead people contribute? Nothing. And that's what he's getting at is you are spiritually dead before, before God. And he describes them as being uncircumcised. So that change hasn't happened. So just right here, what we see Paul describing is what does it look like to be a believer in Christ? There has to be uh, a raising from the dead, spiritually speaking. You go from being spiritually dead to alive. That's something only God can do because only God can overcome the power of sin through his grace in Christ and what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And when you're in Christ, there's a change. There's a cutting away of an old heart and a replacing it with a new heart. If you claim to be in Christ and there's no change, you're missing something and therefore you may not be the believer in Christ you think you are because there's a change that takes place. There should be change in desires. There should be a a change in the things I wanna see and I wanna know God, whereas before I didn't wanna know him, I wanna live for him. And it could be a gradual thing, but you should definitely sense and see and feel a change, and that should be lived down your life. He says, but this was you before. You were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made uh, you alive together with Christ having uh, forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. And what Paul's saying, the way that God could forgive sins. See, I can't forgive sins on my own accord. I, I have no authority before God to say to you, your sins are forgiven. So if you come and make a confession to me of your sins, it is not within my authority to give you God's forgiveness for those sins. I can't, I can't speak to you or say to you that now your standing with God has changed because you've confessed to me and I have now forgiven your sins. I can't do that. No man, no person can do that. Only God can do that. Why? Because we have a debt. We have a debt against God and it requires God canceling out the debt. And the way he cancels out that debt is that he, he does that in Christ when he sets it aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ's death on the cross included the canceling of my debt. 
When I receive Christ by faith, my debt before God because of my sins are all forgiven. Why? Because they were put upon Christ. Paul says that, that was you. you. You've been forgiven, but before that, you were dead. He goes on, and then in verse 15, I highlight it because I think this is another reason why I think when he talks about elemental spirits, this is, this is in the context. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we've looked at this verse multiple times. You should memorize this verse. If you're engaging in spiritual warfare, pause, every one of us is engaging in spiritual warfare. There's no neutrality. That's where we started, right? There is no neutral ground. You can hide from it, but it's still gonna happen and you're still gonna be influenced by it. You have to know what the enemy is doing so you know how to stand and resist. You have to know what God has said about this so you know where your authority lies. Here it is. God has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Again, Paul's talking about spiritual beings here. He's not talking about people. He's talking about spiritual beings, rulers and authorities. He disarmed them. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So when Christ went to death on the cross and he rose from the dead, it's not just about me. The gospel is not just about me getting saved. The gospel is about God's king and Messiah overcoming all of the impacts of the rebellion. All of the rebellions among all of his creation and showing Christ as the rightful reigning king of the universe. The gospel includes all of that. It's not just about me. It is about what God has overcome and the victory that he has in Christ. It includes me, but it also includes that he put to shame all of these spiritual beings who have been in rebellion against Christ, against God. And he did that in Christ, which tells me something. If I'm in Christ... I have Christ's authority. Now, that's going to be a whole separate sermon in just a couple weeks. But if I'm in Christ, I have the authority in Christ. And what did Christ say at the end of his life before he was, I mean, at the end of his time on earth, before he rose, he said, um, all authority in heaven. All authority in heaven. He didn't say uh, 90% of the authority in heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. So Paul clearly has this in mind, and he's saying, you've got to not be taken captive, all right? And he's, he's, he took a side note, and he says, you don't want to be led captive because in Christ, all these things are true of you, and Christ has defeated those, those demonic beings that are leading you astray. So don't follow after him. Now, we're going to skip some verses and jump to verse 20, but in chapter uh, 2, verse 16 up to verse 19, he starts to get real practical, and he'll say, therefore... And when you see a therefore, it means he's building upon what he just said. So all that we just looked at, the therefore in verse 16, is because of that. And verse 20 is just continuing on with that. So let's look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings. And we're going to stop there for just a moment. So he brings back the elemental spirits, but now he's getting very practical, getting way down to earth for us here. And so he says, if with Christ you have died, and the assumption that Paul has, this way he has worded this, is if you, if you have died with Christ, and I'm assuming that you have, Right? This is not Paul asking a question, well, if you've died, it's an assumption. If you've died with Christ, and I assume that you have. 
then this is true of you. If you've died with Christ, then you died to the elemental spirits of the world. So then he would be able to say, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, you are no longer under their power. Why do you still submit to them? And then he's gonna list them. Now, this is where I don't think you're gonna see this coming. Because the things that Paul lists do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are human regulations. You must abstain from certain types of food. You must only eat this type of food. Hey, you can't touch certain things. It might make you defiled. You, you, you can't handle these kind of... It sounds very much like things we would find in the Old Testament law, right? And so, so that's part of the Jewish nature of this false teaching that's coming in. But listen, people are crazy. And, and people get weird ideas about, about how you should get saved or how you should then live your life before God. And so who knows? We just don't have enough information to know all the details. We just know there are things that were being told to these Colossian believers that you can't eat that. You can't touch that. This is not what we do. And so we have a word for this kind of thing where you have rules and regulations that you put before a person and you either say you must do this in order to be made right with God or you must um, have faith in Christ and do this in order to be made right with God. Or it might look like this to the believer. Well, now that you're a believer, this is how you have to live your life in order to grow. Like we have a word for that. Do you know what that word is? It's called legalism. When a set of rules or obligations are created and the person or group of people that creates that, that set of rules or obligations, they're the standard that you now have to live up to. But they'll tell you it's God's standard. But it's their standard that you have to live up to. And if you reach their standard, then you're, then you're growing. Then you'll be made right with God. Oftentimes, the legalistic standards are much higher than God himself. Oftentimes, the standards of legalism, the rules and regulations that we submit ourselves to are oftentimes far higher than what God ever requires of us. So let me just make this connection in case it's not, it's not quite there yet. When we talk about open doors and spiritual warfare, things that can open us up to being influenced by demons, so being demonized, or when we, or when we talk about things that are influenced by demons, legalism is influenced by demons demons. I had a pastor tell me once early on when I started pastoring, he said, when a church goes too long without having the grace of God preached to them, they will just drift toward legalism. He could say that, one, from his experience, but two, because that's just who we are as people. Our, our, the sin that impacts us even though we're in Christ, we are still impacted by sin. Until the day Christ returns, we will live in a body that is impacted by sin, which means not only does my physical body have desires that I have to resist, not only does my physical body get sick and die, but part of my body is my mind, my heart, and so my, my thoughts and my attitudes are still impacted by sin. They can be redeemed and renewed, but I will not be free of that impact until Christ returns and completes the redemption process. That is, joins my immaterial person to the physical person that's fully redeemed. So while I'm living in this life and I'm being impacted by sin, if I'm not submitting myself to the grace of God, human nature, sinful human nature, will push me towards what can I do? What can I do to be made right with God? How can I live so that God will accept me? 
And, and even if I get past that and I, and I understand the gospel is by grace through faith and so I receive the, the gospel, I receive what Christ has done for me and I, and I know I don't add anything to it, but then I, as a believer now, as a new believer, I start to live my life like I, I should prove to God that I was worthy to be picked. And so my life gets choked out by legalism. I'm still submitting myself to things that are influenced by the elemental spirits of the world. And when you think about every other religion, every other religion, it's all opposed to Christianity. It's all opposed to the gospel. The gospel says God, who we have offended, did what was necessary in Christ so that those who offended him could be made right with him through what he has accomplished on their behalf. That's grace. I don't do anything to deserve it. I don't do anything to earn it. Every other religion has some component of the God that you have made mad, the God that you were at odds with, requires of you this. You must live this way. You must do this in addition to. Every other religion is about what I can do to get myself up to God. Christianity and the gospel is about what God has done to come down to me in Christ grace. But when I abandon that, when I fail to preach that to myself, when I fail to understand how that impacts everything that I do, how I live as a husband or a wife, as a mom or a dad, as a, as a worker, an employee, a supervisor, the way I think about politics, the way I think about education, the way I think about all kinds of things, when I fail to run all of that through an understanding of this is what God has done for me in Christ, this is who God says he is, this is who I am, that I'm left to use in human tradition. I'll be open to being influenced by demonic beings who will certainly point me away from Christ and his gospel. And whatever I land on will be not according to Christ. And so that's why Paul says, you've got to watch out. And so then in verse 23, he wraps it up. These things that he's describing here, the do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, I want you to hear how he describes this. Verse 23, he says, these, these do not touch, do not handle, these rules and these regulations. He says, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom. And don't they, though? When a person is operating in legalism and they say, hey, these are the only types of clothes I wear. And if I'm a female, these are the only types of clothes you should wear. And here's how you should, you should do with your hair, makeup, you better stay away from the makeup. And, and they've got all these rules and regulations. And then they impose that on you. You know how you feel. You've been on that end. You know when someone is holding a standard over you that you are not currently measuring up to. You know the feeling. It feels like you're being bullied. It feels like they're looking down upon your head from a top. It feels like, like you are less than. You know that feeling. And then you know what it does to us if we're not solid and stable. We look at it and go, well, you it does take a lot to wear only those kind of clothes. It does take a lot to be, to be confident and secure in this way. It, it does take a lot to abstain from that kind of thing because I couldn't do it. And so it appears to be wise. It appears to be spiritual. It appears to be spiritually mature. And Paul says, it has the appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion. 
It's human tradition. It's a self-made religion. And it's asceticism, which is denying myself things, um, applying negative things to me. And if there's enough negative things that, that I can apply to my life, then a positive will come out of it. Oftentimes, asceticism is associated with physical severity to the body. So there are countries still today where believers in Christ will whip themselves with scourges and whips on their back as they're going to the cross, remembering the last days of Christ. And they're, they're trying to inflict the same type of suffering that Christ had. They even go so far as some of them are crucified, right? There's, there's things that people do. I've heard stories when it comes to spiritual warfare of people who have been demonized and this demon manifests. And, and this was in China. That doesn't mean anything. This is where it was, right? And the, the believers in that church went and they got bamboo poles and started beating the person who was manifesting the demon because that's what they thought they had to do to get the demon out. You don't. Christ has authority, and that authority is spoken with words. You do not have to beat a demon out of somebody. But this is what we do because, because it appears to be wise. And so Paul goes on, and he says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You give in to these things, you set these rules and these obligations that you're going to follow. Ultimately, they're not going to change the desires of your flesh, that part of us that is still impacted by sin. You know Why? Because let, let me just take an example. If I have an addiction of some kind, um, let me go with um, kid-friendly. Let's go with gambling. Let's go with gambling. All right, so I have a gambling addiction. I, can't, I just get this high when I'm gambling, and I, and I, and I just can't stop doing it. Well, there's one, one way to treat that, and I certainly should start here. I should stay away from places that have gambling. Right? I should stay away from slot machines. I shouldn't go to Vegas. I shouldn't go to Atlantic City. I should just stay away. Don't go to the casinos around here. Right? I, should, I should do that. But if that's my only strategy, and I'm going to white-knuckle my way through that, and I'm just going to resist every time I have that urge, I'm ultimately not doing anything to stop the indulgence of the flesh. I'm just white-knuckling, and what's probably happening, if I would be honest, is it's manifesting somewhere else because there's a, a root there, and that root is in my heart. And I've got to deal with, why was I gambling? What was I doing there? What was it giving me that I felt like I needed that I didn't have? Now I've got to deal with that. That's the work of the Spirit. That's the, the work where the Spirit produces in me the fruit of the Spirit rather than allowing me to go and fulfill the desires of the flesh. Right? So Paul says legalism, these rules and the obligation, they don't stop the indulgence of the flesh. So, Anything that undermines the all-sufficient, which means Christ did everything that was necessary for my salvation and living, for me to know God in the way that God has revealed himself. If I do, I buy into anything, I live in such a way, I teach anything that undermines that, that adds to it, takes away from it, anything, I will add legalism in here, any of that is demonic. So when I think about a battleground, when I think about where, where spiritual warfare is showing up, this is one of the places we've got to watch for because this is where we will drift. This is where we would never label it spiritual warfare. We would never look for demon, uh, demonic things. We would never look for demonization in legalism. But right here, Paul does it for us, and he makes the connection. So anything that undermines the all-sufficient work of Christ is demonic. Demonic. 